0: Uh, Y'all, if you were with us last week, we spoke about the great Olympic champion, a man named Eric Little, who shocked the world back in 1924 when he changed his Olympic event because running on a Sunday was in conflict with his Christian beliefs. And so his event, the 100 meters, which he was heavily favored in because it was going to be run in Paris on a Sunday, he refused to take part in it. He changed instead to the 400 meters, which changing something like that is not, you can't just flip a switch. It's incredibly difficult. But against all odds, Eric Little won the gold medal in the 400 meters and set a new world record in the process. It truly is the stuff of legend. If you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, then you've seen his story. It made Eric Little famous all across the globe. This was back before football, baseball, basketball were popular sports. Olympics was it. And so everybody knew him and his story. But I also mentioned last week, that's not the most interesting part of his life story. After the Olympic games of 1924, Eric Little answered God's call to live and serve as a missionary in China. He gave his whole life to sharing the gospel with the Chinese, laboring to learn their language, translating the Bible for them. He, he gave, he, he called them my people. He loved the people of China so much and so desperately wanted them to know Jesus. He was so committed to this mission that he refused to even train for and compete in the following Olympics in 1928, although he would have been favored to win gold again. He refused to leave the work to which God had called him. Well, about a decade later, when World War II came to pass, we know this story. Japan invades China and sets up prison camps all throughout the country, And in 1943, Eric Little, the missionary to China, was taken captive by the Japanese and made a prisoner in one such camp, a camp called Weixin. And there, Eric Little suffered terrible mistreatment and malnourishment. He wasted away to almost nothing. His family back home was helpless to save him, and yet Eric thrived in the camp. The kids in the camp called him Uncle Eric because he was such a bright shining example of love and care and Christian life. But then one day, even there in the camp, Eric Little became strangely ill. And there was no apparent reason for it. He was still a relatively young man, extremely healthy. But he began to lose his balance. He began to struggle with lapses in his memory. And then one day, Eric Little suffered a terrible stroke. And then soon after, another. And then a third stroke ended his life. And he died there in that prison camp at the age of 43 from an undiagnosed brain tumor. Only a few months later, Japan was conquered, and everyone in the prison was set free to go home. Uh, Many of them passed by Eric Little's grave on their way out, wondering what might have been for such a great man. Stories like that bother me. I don't know if they bother you. Because we look at a situation and we really rack our brains to wonder what on earth could God be up to in a story like that? What sense does it make that a person as great as Eric, not just great in the eyes of the world as a champion in sports, but somebody who truly loves the Lord, who's committed himself to the Lord, how could he suffer a fate like that to end up in prison camp and to die so young in such a, a seemingly cruel twist of fate? How does stuff like that happen, especially to people who love Jesus? I want to ask a deep and difficult question like that, hopefully because I want to prime the pump a little bit for us as we enter into the book of Exodus. Exodus is a book, especially in the beginning stages, that asks and forces us to reckon with some deep and difficult questions about life, about suffering, and about God's place in it all. Now, it doesn't begin that way. You know, Genesis leads to Exodus, right? Genesis, then Exodus. At the end of Genesis, at the end of chapter 50 of the first book of the Bible, things are actually kind of trending up for God's people. Things are looking pretty good. If you're familiar with, with the way Genesis kind of unfolds, the, the latter portion of that book, the last 12 chapters or so, are all about the story of Joseph, that great story of Joseph who ends up in Egypt. And if you remember, Joseph's 11 brothers are murderously jealous of him. They sell him into slavery. That's bad. But we find out that God, in the midst of it all, is orchestrating this wonderful plan to send Joseph into Egypt, where Joseph is raised up to second in command over the whole nation, second only to the Pharaoh himself. And then by God's design, Joseph orchestrates this, this plan to feed the nation during a time of terrible Famine. So when his rascally brothers come to Egypt in search of food just to survive, Joseph is there, and he receives them back and forgives them. And at the end of Genesis, the patriarch Jacob, their dad, he and his whole family are brought over to Egypt as well. All the sons and their wives and their children, they're all brought in where they're treated as honored guests guests of Pharaoh. Whereas they were foreigners who otherwise would be maligned and mistreated and and cast out, they're brought in to a place called Goshen, a place that was absolutely filled with opportunity for them to settle, to make a new home, to to grow as family, to bless their livestock. It it couldn't have been any better. It's a happily ever after kind of situation there at the end of Genesis. But then we turn the page, literally, you turn the page to Exodus chapter 1. And things take a a dark and terrible turn almost immediately. So let's pick up. This is Exodus 1, beginning in verse 6 here. Verse 6 says, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt. Who did not know Joseph? He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks, and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. So we can see how something like this may have unfolded, right? The old Pharaoh is gone. So is Joseph and all their generation. A new king is brought to power, and he feels no special obligation for this family called Israel. In fact, the new king, the new Pharaoh, is scared of them because Israel is no longer a family. Israel has become a nation. They are becoming, in fact, what God promised they would be. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham and says to him that I will make of you a great nation. God described it as being like the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore. Too many to count. That's what's happening right now in the land of Egypt. And so the new Pharaoh, concerned that Israel would eventually become so powerful, so many that they would overtake them, he devises a plan. To enslave them. You see in verse eleven, he appoints taskmasters or slave masters over them to afflict them with hard labor. Then in verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. That word rigorous can also be translated as ruthless. It was Pharaoh's intention to crush the Israelites under the terror and the agony of slavery. Now, y'all, I know this shouldn't have to be said out loud, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Slavery is a unique form of evil and cruelty. It denies the intrinsic value of a human being, and it's an affront to God himself, because God is the one who made us in his image. And so there's no... We can't read Pharaoh's reasoning here and say, well, you know, he was a politically and economically shrewd man, and he was just doing what was best for his people. No, this is pure evil. And it did not come from a shrewd heart. It came from an evil heart. And it gets worse, not better. We see this beginning in verse 15. Pharaoh hatches a new plan that he's going to murder every Israelite baby boy, in an effort to suppress the population, the baby boys who will one day grow up to be mighty soldiers. Let's put an end to that before it even begins. And so first, he commands the Hebrew midwives to commit these murders on his behalf, but the faithful women refuse to defy God. They won't do it. And so then, when that fails, Pharaoh makes a standing order for the whole nation. He tells all the people, look at verse 22, Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile. And every daughter, you are to keep alive. That's a little survey of chapter one. And it's hard to imagine, as chapter one comes to a close, that things could really get any worse than what we just read. And so if we come back to this question, as we just survey what's happening in the Bible, that question comes up again. The question I posed Concerning Eric Little's fate a moment ago. What could God possibly be up to here? Is the Lord involved in this thing at all? Because perhaps on the surface it wouldn't appear so. Is Israel just subject to the whims of an evil man called Pharaoh? Well, y'all, let's take a quick trip back into Genesis. I've already made reference to this once or twice. Genesis leads us into Exodus, and there's a great deal for us to mine into because they are meant to be taken really as as one book, more so. I mean, Exodus is simply a continuation of the story. So I mentioned a moment ago how God made a promise to Abraham way back, Genesis 12. I'm going to make of you a great nation. Well, God comes in Genesis 15 and reaffirms that same covenant promise to Abraham, and God says something very specific and very interesting. This is Genesis 15, verse 13. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Now we're talking about a great, a great distance in time and space between that promise, that declaration, and the events of Exodus 1, God's promise of covenant blessing to Abraham included the Exodus. It didn't come as a surprise to God. It was part of God's uh, oversight and intention. God declared it beforehand. Later in Genesis, we're told that it was God who sent Joseph to Egypt. Now, from our perspective, no, the 11 brothers, they're the ones who sold him into slavery. But Joseph himself comes to this conclusion you did not send me here. God did. God sent me ahead of you. After that, Jacob, the dad of all the 12 sons, when he brings the whole family to Israel, I'm sorry, to, uh, to Egypt, he does it by God's command. In Genesis 46, God says to Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. Now, there's an element of mystery here that we cannot deny. God doesn't explain all of this to us. He didn't explain it all to them. They're not totally sure why they're enslaved, and the answer is never really given to us. But I hope we can see this and what they saw, that woven all throughout this story, even in great suffering, woven throughout is something we call providence. God's providence, which is a word used to describe a God who is actively, intimately, powerfully involved in everything that goes on. God is always seeing to his ultimate and good purposes. God is governing history here in a way that accords with his plan and his promise and his goodness. That's what providence means. Now, it doesn't mean, of course that everything that happens is good. No, there's a great deal of evil and and just awful things happening right before our eyes. What it does mean, though, is that God is always, always accomplishing his good purposes over and above the events of the earth, over and above sinful human beings. Pharaoh's not in charge. Israel is not subject to the whims of one man who happens to sit on the Egyptian throne. And there's, there's, interestingly enough, there's there's some detail here that, that we've kind of read over already in Exodus 1 that gives us insight into this, into God's providential work, even in the face of slavery and so much terror. It actually shows up three times in the first chapter. Let me give you one example from verse 12. Remember, Pharaoh's plan was to crush the Israelites under slavery, so that they may not multiply and overtake us. That was the plan. Look at verse 12 again, though. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. Pharaoh's plan to systematically crush Israel only results in Israel becoming greater. That's not how it's supposed to happen. Pharaoh's plan made good sense, and yet no matter what he devised and intended, it could not work. It did not work. Israel only became greater. Y'all, if you've ever read through the book of Acts, in the early church, persecution, which was designed to crush the early Christian movement, you know what it did? It only made it grow all the more. The word of God continued to increase and spread in the face of persecution. That's not coincidence. That's called providence. See, to my knowledge, you correct me all after church if I'm wrong, the Bible never tells us why Israel ended up in slavery to Egypt. The Bible never says that God was punishing them for their sins. We're not really sure what the reason was. But what we can know, what's abundantly clear, is that God was always with them, always presiding over them, and present with them every single step of the way. It happens, in some sense, maybe like an invisible hand as we see in chapter 1, but it becomes more and more tangible as we go. The theme continues into chapter 2. Let's look at chapter 2 also this morning. Chapter 2 is where we find Moses being introduced for the first time. A woman gives birth to a beautiful son, we're told, and she hides him away because she knows that every newborn son is supposed to be sacrificed to the Nile, thrown in and drowned. But in an effort to save this boy's life, she hides him. After three months, though, she can no longer keep him hidden. And so this precious, faithful woman takes a wicker basket, surrounds it with tar and pitch to create like a little ark. And she puts the baby in the ark and sets him in the shallow parts of the Nile where the reeds are. Now, even still, in that moment, there's not a whole lot of hope for this child. He hasn't been saved. Perhaps his death has only been forestalled and prolonged. But then somebody comes down to the banks of the Nile and finds the baby. You know who it is? Y'all know this story. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the banks of the Nile to bathe and finds this child, and she compassionately takes him in. She's the one who names him Moses, and she even hires Moses' own mother to serve as his nurse and raise him up until he's ready to be handed over. So Moses, who will one day deliver Israel from Egypt is actually delivered himself, rescued, and raised up inside Pharaoh's own house. That's a truth stranger than fiction right there. Another example of God's providence. And y'all, here's what's amazing. Now, Exodus 2 doesn't give us this as explicitly, but something we didn't know about Moses, and we'll continue to talk about this in the successive weeks, right? But Moses grew up in the house of Pharaoh. That's the only life he really ever knew. And yet Egypt was not his home. Moses never, ever felt at home there. He never lost his identity as an Israelite. And we don't get a lot of information about this in Exodus 2, but much later in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, we're given insight into Moses, the kind of man he was and the kind of faith he had. Listen, this is Hebrews 11, verse 23. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. In other words, Moses could have very easily assimilated in with Egypt. He could have enjoyed all the comforts and treasures and benefits of Pharaoh's household, but he refused. By faith, he chose rather to enter into the great valley of hardship with his kinsmen. For Moses, it was better to be with God in suffering than to be without God in comfort and pleasure. Now, again, if we know his story, we know that things take a sharp and downward turn. This decision to be a faithful Israelite ends up getting Moses in some terrible trouble. So you see in chapter 2, verse 11, Moses witnesses one day, he's grown up, by the way. He's like 40 at this point. It's been, it's been a minute. But he witnesses one day an Egyptian abusing an Israelite, beating an Israelite. Moses takes a look around to see that the coast is clear, and he rises up and kills the Egyptian abuser, which, of course, is not something that can be kept secret. It becomes known to everybody, including Pharaoh, Pharaoh who now seeks to kill Moses over what he's done, and so Moses has to flee. He goes far east of Egypt to a place called Midian, and there in Midian, Moses gets married he becomes a father, and he lives as a shepherd there in a foreign land for 40 years before God calls him to go back to Egypt. We'll read all about that next week in chapter 3. But y'all, I want to, that's, that's a summary there, okay, of, of chapters 1 and 2. And I give it to us a little bit more as a summary for the time being because I want us to come back to this central question for today. Okay, chapters 1 and 2. Things were trending up at the end of Genesis and now they're about as bad as they can be. Even Moses, who we know the story, Moses is gonna come back and deliver the people, but even Moses seems to be far away, not only from his people, but from God. How in the world could this have a happy ending? What is God really up to? And that's a fair question for us to ask as we look at it with human eyes. Is there any plan or purpose at all to this kind of suffering? I mean, you know, we see God's providence at work. I've I've tried to show us that, at least in part. But it's not until the end of chapter 2 that we realize this is not just the invisible hand of God helping things along. God really is front and center here. Moses is not the hero of Exodus. God is front and center. And that becomes clear perhaps for the first time now in chapter 2, verse 23. Look at the very end of chapter 2 with me. Now, it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help, because of their bondage, rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. That's a comforting verse. Like, we're we're trending in the right direction again, it would seem. But yet, it it might be for us still kind of troubling, right? Especially if we read in our modern English kind of way here, okay? This is unsettling. After all these years, it's been a long time. Slavery didn't just start last week. We're talking about decades and decades of mistreatment and evil imposed upon God's people. Is Exodus 2 telling us that God is just now hearing their cries? Is he just now remembering his covenant? I mean, if we read it like that, it might seem to to indicate to us that God is forgetful, perhaps, or or, or indifferent. Maybe he's just incompetent. Maybe he'd like to help, but, you know, what's he going to do? it would seem to indicate that God is only now coming around here. But y'all, when we read Exodus 2, we're actually, we're getting to kind of peek behind the curtain to something that Israel in that present moment could not yet see. We're being told something about God. All the people can see in this moment is suffering and distress with no end in sight, but we're told that God hears them and sees them, and takes notice of them, meaning he cares for them. And above all, we see that God remembers his covenant. And y'all, that is to say, not that God had forgotten, and now he comes back around. But that language is meant to communicate to us absolute providential care and intimacy and action. When it says that God remembers his covenant, that means that God is entering in, to bring a fulfillment to his promise. He never forgot. He was never indifferent or far off. The language here is meant to show us something about who God is, not what God became after so many years. It's deeply personal and intimate language. God always cared. And for perhaps for us, unknown and mysterious reasons, he forestalled his deliverance. But now he's coming down. In fact, we'll see this next week. Spoiler, in chapter 3, God's going to come to Moses in a burning bush, and one of the things God says to him is, I have come down to deliver my people. So for all the things that we can't understand when it comes to Israel's suffering, or frankly, our own, the suffering that we experience, there's a lot we don't understand, and frankly, we may never understand, but the true and the final word always belongs to God. And what the scripture testifies here at the end of Exodus 2 is clear all throughout that God is a God who hears, who sees, who cares, and who remembers. Yes, the Lord is doing providentially a million things right now, as it were behind the scenes with an invisible hand, things that some things we see and perceive, other things we'll never know. God's always at work. But right here, we see his greatest work, The work of deliverance is not done behind the scenes or in a corner. It's done front and center. God makes a promise based on his heart. He will save his people, just as he said he would. And he'll do it by coming down. And this, y'all, this is the big picture of what Exodus is meant to show us. All of Exodus, not just the beginning. We'll see it week after week after week. That God, in all his power, all his grace, and all his love, he comes down to rescue His people. That was true for Israel, and it's true for us also. That's the the whole great big story of the Bible. I mean, think about it as it pertains to us right now. That Israel was enslaved. They were under the curse of the power of a man named Pharaoh, and they had no ability to overcome their situation. Y'all, the Scripture testifies about you and me, right where we sit, that all of us, Apart from God, we are enslaved to sin. We are under the curse of death, destined to die. And we are without hope in the world. That's the testimony of humanity. But then there's an overwhelming light that invades that darkness. The world which is in shambles, the world which is condemned. We're told God, so loved this world, that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. God gave his Son, or we could say God came down to deliver his people. Jesus said this of himself, the Son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The Apostle Paul says, when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His great mercy. We are saved. Y'all, this is the Christian message. This is the message we preach with absolute conviction and joy week after week at Harvest Church. Jesus is the divine Son of God, who has indeed come down to deliver his people, who's come down for us. And y'all, what's so interesting here, when we talk about the nature of suffering and the heaviness of suffering, what what caused the people of Israel to cry out, they sighed over and over because their oppression was so heavy and they saw no end in sight. Y'all, we may not know what it is to be enslaved in the same way, but we know what it is to suffer. We know what it is to walk in darkness. We know what it is to be overcome by the weight of our own sin. Human suffering is not uh, something that that any of us are exempt from. We know it face to face. And so when Jesus comes down to deliver us, how is he going to do that? Is he going to just come down in some sort of hovering kind of fashion and pull us up out of the darkness of this world, making sure he doesn't get himself dirty in the process? Jesus Christ saves us through suffering himself, by suffering himself. That's why y'all right behind me here, we keep it front and center. We nailed it into the wall. It ain't coming out. The cross is the front and center. It's the centerpiece of who we are and our faith and our hope. It all rests on this, that God himself was willing to suffer with us, but even more, he suffered for us. Jesus Christ on the cross took our place. He died on our behalf in place of sinners. He took upon Himself the the weight and the penalty of condemnation. He took upon Himself the darkness of sin and hell. All of it came upon Him on the cross in His truest and greatest suffering so that in Him we might know the grace of the forgiveness of sins so that all of the darkness that we have chosen in rebellion against God would be canceled out by the blinding light of the Son of God. That on the cross, because Jesus Christ was willing to suffer for you and me, not only are our sins now canceled, given to Him and taken away, but His great righteousness is given to us in its place. We are freely given a righteous standing with God reconcile to him if we simply receive him for who He is and what He's done for us. You know when we, when we consider the Exodus account, we're looking at people, the Israelites, as great and mighty and, and as, as multiplied as they had become, there was no way for them to work their way out of Egypt. Any more than you and I can work our way out of our sin. There was no power within the Israelites, to deliver themselves. They couldn't do it. And you and I, at the very deepest level, we share the same weakness, the same disposition. We are incapable of delivering ourselves. Only if God comes down to rescue Israel will Egypt lose its grip on them. Can they be made free? And the very same message prevails over us today. Only if God comes down, only if God should send His Son to be our rescuer, our savior? Can we be made free? Can the bonds of sin and death be broken once and for all? And y'all, he has. He's come. Just as he promised he would. Exodus for us is a picture. It's not a self-contained story. It's not an interesting thing we learned in Bible school. It's the great story of God laid out for us in advance. The God who has mercy on those who cannot save themselves and who comes down to deliver us. You all know, when, when Eric Little died in that prison camp, there were a great many people, including some of his own friends and family, who became very despondent with God. Eric's own daughter, who never really got to know her dad. She was one of them. She couldn't understand. What could God have possibly been up to In allowing this to happen to such a great man, a faithful servant, my dad. But Eric himself never wavered and something his daughter was eventually given as a gift, the gift of her dad's last words on the day of his death when Eric Little could no longer speak because of the strokes he had experienced. Presumably he couldn't write either. But on that final day, Eric Little took a pen to paper and recorded his final words. All will be well, he wrote. All will be well. See, Eric Little possessed a hope stronger than any terminal illness. He had a hope that no prison camp could strip away from him His hope, his conviction, that even in the face of war and enslavement and death, his hope was in a living Savior, Jesus Christ. One who had himself come down and suffered the greatest of all torture and death, and then rose again in victory. He was Eric's hope. And because Jesus was his life, his hope, his salvation, he knew with certainty, all will be well. Because he had trusted that Jesus Christ would save him forever. Just as he saves forever all who trust in him. All will be well for the people of God. That doesn't mean we'll understand it all along the way but for those of us who trust Christ, who have received his grace by faith. The Savior is alive. And every promise that's been given to us has been and will be fulfilled. That's our hope. Y'all, as we we pray and and close our time and sing and celebrate communion, I want to encourage us in this. if, if If the Lord would lead you in any way to respond, if you wanna respond by even talking about what it means to be a Christian, to receive this kind of freedom and life and grace that overwhelms our sin, if you want the, the security that Eric had, that all will be well even in the face of such hardship that you face right now, and we'd love to pray with you, we'd love to talk with you. Uh, i want to ask here in a moment our, our pastors, Evan and Aaron, they'll stand here at the back doors. If you wanna slip out uh, as we pray, as we sing, Take them by the hand and, and just ask for prayer or ask to have a conversation. Come find me after church. We Just don't leave this building if the Lord is working in your heart and you have need to respond this morning. We want to be there with you and for you. Y'all, we don't understand all our suffering, but God sent his son to suffer. And therefore, we know that even in our worst suffering, we know that God cares, he hears, he sees, he remembers, and he saves. Would you pray with me? Father, we have this morning, I pray, an opportunity to, uh, I pray, embrace, that we would embrace great big thoughts of you, that we would not see you as small, thinking perhaps that you would be indifferent about what we go through or that you are somehow forgetful maybe and need to be reminded. Or even that we're we're so sinful or so far gone that you you don't have the power or the inclination to save us. Father, those are small thoughts. I pray that you would show us in in the, the greatest measure how truly great and big and wonderful your love and your grace are that, Father, in the face of, of all our sin, in the face of all our struggle and suffering, in all the dark and, and difficult and ugly places, Lord, that make up our lives and make up this world, Father, you came down in love and in mercy and in power. Father, we'll, we'll enjoy in these coming weeks seeing, Lord, this work itself out and, in Exodus, Lord, what your coming down looks like in judging evil and delivering those who can't save themselves. But I pray even today, Lord, as we consider the grace of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Savior, who has come for us, Lord, that we will receive him, that we will find our great hope in him, not in ourselves, not in 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 the prospect of, of our improvement, working our way out of our problems, Lord, I pray we would never entertain a thought, Father, that instead we would look only to the cross of Christ, who stretched out his hands and has welcomed us in by his free grace. Jesus, who has suffered the penalty for sin and evil so that we might not. Jesus, who has given his righteousness to us, which we could never earn otherwise. Father, help us, I pray this morning, to think big thoughts, grand and majestic thoughts of our Savior. There is no one greater, and there is no greater grace or love than what you have given us when you came down to save. Father, let this be our our strength and our song, even our joy, In the face of suffering, all will be well. Because we have a great and living Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.